the influence of the long 1970s energy crisis, episode 67. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 1970. No, by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Rudiger Graf, who is directing the research department on knowledge, economy, politics at the Leibniz Center for Contemporary History. What is the influence of the 1970s on our current energy system? The importance of energy sits within our daily lives, as Rudiger states. Any supply shortages or price increases are immediately known as making energy a key political issue. The failure to secure supplies demonstrates weak leadership. Inversely, effective energy crisis management can display strong leadership skills. I think this can be one of our broad takeaways from looking at the lessons learned from the 1970s energy crisis. And looking around today, we can certainly see political leaders stepping up or attempting to step up, step up and lead the way out of a crisis. Rudiger introduces the term along 1970s, which, as I've learned, is a term used by historians for other decades as well. But for us, it's important because the 1970s energy crisis stretched into the early 1980s with Reagan and Thatcher working to resolve these high prices. We are able to learn more about the role of nuclear power and the perspective on peak oil from the 1970s. There's an ironic trust in nuclear technology that's going to keep developing, but not a trust in developing technology to extract more oil. So we have peak oil. Sometimes I think new, each new episode of this podcast is the best. But what I think what I mean is that each episode uncovers a new a- aspect of the energy system I didn't know about. And this episode certainly delivers in this aspect. There's so much history in both Europe and, well, of course, Europe, right? I'm from America, but still. And within the global oil market. So if we're talking about history of the energy markets, right? Modern energy market, I would say post-World War II. We can definitely look at 1970s to understand how the energy system we have today, the fights, the struggles, uh, really began and were, I would say, solidified in the crisis from the 1970s. And really, we really get into detail over what what occurred in the 1970s and how institutions and politicians interacted and behaved and kind of set us on a new trajectory. So taking a historical approach and delving into why political or business decisions were made at the time can inform and enhance our present day analysis, which is one of the reasons I do this podcast is to inform my analysis and to produce better analysis. This episode delivers in both scope and depth. Rudiger holds great knowledge and understanding how politicians interacted around the energy sector He describes the role and perspective of Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, along with Willy Brandt, enabling us to better grasp the power politics in both domestic and international terms. Understanding how and why international organizations like OPEC and the International Energy Agency were created also provides context to some of the global fights over oil production and analysis. A final note. This interview was done for my current role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. The funding was generously provided to produce the the podcast until the end of 2022. And just a sneak kind of a peek of what's going to come in 2023, save the end of July 2023. 
for something. Okay, I'm gonna have more in a few few weeks, but we just got approval for some funding for something that's gonna happen uh, in Budapest. So I'm really excited to share that when we publish everything. So the intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. The content of each episode is great for teaching, research, and identifying how you can assist this energy transition. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Professor Rudiger Graf, and why was the 1970s an interesting period to look at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm a historian, and um, I had written my PhD on the history of Weimar Germany, actually, and visions of the future in Weimar Germany. And uh, German, uh, the German academic system demands from you, uh, in order to become a professor, you have to focus on a completely different field. And um, at that time, um, I was uh, so I was looking for a, for, a, for a different topic, and um, I thought that uh, the field of energy history and especially the history of oil was extremely interesting because it offered an opportunity to combine the history of um, international politics with um, the uh, history of the everyday life and the history of uh, material politics. Um, and um, when historians were talking about the 1970s, they always used uh, the oil crisis as the pivotal turning point. So the oil crisis seemed to separate the decades of um, prosperity and seemingly uh, unlimited growth. And um, looking at our current um, energy predicament in the um, around oh, of years ago, 10, 10, 15 years ago, um, the 1970s were the place to look at in order to look for the um, origins of our current um, energy political constellation or situation. As a historian, maybe you could outline because, yeah, as you mentioned on the pod, looking at the podcast, it, it is a bit future orientated. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a historian, what kind of? And I'm a geographer, so when I look at energy, I see kind of space and scale issues or space and scale relationships. But as a historian, when you look at the field of energy, uh, how, how do you look at it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are, uh, there are various um, angles uh, by which the field of energy history has been uh, dealt with. And I think only recently um, it has been conceptualized as energy history. We have been working on the, in these fields uh, for a very long time. But we, um, I don't know, we had historians working on coal, we had historians working on oil, and we had historians working on atomic energy. They actually form kind of a special subgroup. They are kind of disconnected uh, from the rest. But I think that um, energy offers the, uh, that uh, over the last decade, more and more people have uh, started to um, use the energy angle to uh, try to um, get a comprehensive view on uh, these issues. And there, um, the notion of energy is extremely, um, um, it's extremely interesting or it's extremely um, uh, suggestive because um, it offers you a new means to look at uh, social, economic, or a new lens to look at social, economic, and political processes because um, you can basically translate everything that uh, happens in societies into uh, the language of energy. And I think, therefore, it's a very interesting uh, category for historians. 
to describe uh, past societies um, by uh, looking at their at the way they produced and consume energy. Uh -huh. And by looking at the way that they produced and consumed energy, uh, what does that tell you about society? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to ask to answer in this uh, in this <laughs> yeah. extremely yes. in this extremely general way. Yes, um, but uh, it's I mean, it uh, it tells you a lot about uh, the the way um, I don't know whether you deal with an industrial industrial society. Where it tells you something about levels of industrial production. Of course, it also tells you something about. Uh, social relations and mobilities about ways they people communicate and are able to to interact and I think um, yeah I think this is um, okay so so when we talk about the 1970s which is what we're talking about today um, and and the, there was the oil crisis uh, maybe we can get into that but it really when we look at the present day energy market particularly the oil market and even the gas market which kind of followed in its structure and also the institutions that we have nowadays, mm -hmm. uh, what do we see? Mm -hmm. And so why is yeah. the 1970s mm -hmm. oil crisis so important to understand the present-day mm -hmm. energy yeah. system? I think uh, the 1970s and especially the first oil crisis um, is crucial um, to understand our current predicament because that's actually begin the beginning of energy policy as we know it uh, today as a comprehensive uh, field of policy, at least in Western Europe, but also in the United States. Um, up until the 1970s, we had uh, atomic, policy, <laughs> atomic policy, we had a coal policy, which was extremely important, of course, in Germany. We also had an oil policy, but um, it was only uh, in the oil crisis that all these fields became to, uh, uh, became to be subgrouped together as um, a new policy, as the new policy field of energy policy. Yeah. So in Germany, there was no um, coherent energy policy. But um, shortly before the oil crisis, the government developed uh, an, the first energy program. Or in the United States, um, these dispersed um, competencies were um, concentrated first in the Federal Energy Administration, then in the Department of Energy. And I think, therefore, it's crucial to look um, at the 1970s. And this um, came about, of course, because of the, and oil was crucial in this, because um, the, uh, over the decades of the um, exceptional economic boom after the Second World War, we also saw unprecedented increases in energy consumption uh, uh, worldwide, especially in the Western industrialized countries. World energy consumption tripled, and um, I know in Western Europe, I think it uh, uh, the um, increases were even were even much higher. And these um, increases in um, energy consumption were largely due to the um, increases in oil consumption. And um, oil basically um, fueled the exceptional post-war economic boom. And this became threatened uh, in the oil crisis uh, with the um, price increases um, uh, implemented by OPEC and with the um, embargo and the production cuts by the Arab, uh, Arab producing countries. And this actually um, led to the, um, to the formulation of uh, coherent energy policy or to the idea that you have to diversify um, 
energy supplies and diversify import countries that led to the um, rise or that intensified the rise of atomic power and it also intensified the, uh, the rise of natural gas. And maybe we could be a bit specific and maybe this is, but I, I'm kind of interested in Germany as well, mm -hmm. because around this time, atomic power and nuclear power mm -hmm. uh, began to be debated and seen as a solution. And how and why, because now um, I'm, I'm trying to avoid present day politics around mm -hmm. nuclear power. But at that time, maybe in, in Germany and in Europe as a whole, and particularly France, probably in Belgium, mm -hmm. Why was nuclear power seen as a, as a good technology to go with? Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, yeah, nuclear power is, so to speak, uh, the alternative energy <laughs> of the 1970s, so to speak. And it's even endowed with um, utopian potentials. Um, if you look at um, expert debates in the 1970s, um, they always uh, talk about the coming energy gap as the problem. Um, and this energy gap, they locate somewhere in the 1990s because um, they think that from the year 2000 on, basically all our energy needs will be, um, uh, will be uh, covered by nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. yeah? they, they still think that nuclear fusion will be possible. Mm -hmm. and, um, our, but we might run out of oil before that and therefore the 1990s will be critical and okay. um, atomic energy is uh, seen as a, at this point still largely unproblematic uh, technology a technology which um, is dangerous but can be can be handled and um, it's before um, Harrisburg and Chernobyl uh, when uh, I don't know skepticism about atomic energy rose or increased and it's also it becomes clear over the course of the 1970s and 1980s that atomic energy actually can't live up to this uh, utopian promise it had in the 1970s mm -hmm. and maybe and um you don't have to answer it but i'm just kind of thinking about how how why why was this thinking there like why mm -hmm. was the 1990s seen as critical and by the 2000s oh everything will be nuclear power or mm -hmm. that that will be the alternative energy uh, why, why, were, why was the thinking there? Why, it was so much trust in technology or? It was trust, it was trust in, the, um, in the development of atomic, uh, of atomic technology and this idea of nuclear fusion, which was um, seen as, as, uh, as a total breakthrough then. And uh, on the other hand, um, oil predictions, were, uh, predictions about uh, future oil reserves were much more skeptical than they are, than they are oh, today. I mean, they were even, uh, they were still, I mean, depends on who you ask, but um, the club of the report uh, to the club of Rome had only just been published and um, th thinking about uh, the past increases in uh, oil consumption, there was skepticism and no clear knowledge on how much oil there would still be there. So you basically over the course of the 20th century, you have the recurring idea that um, within the next 30 years, we will run out of oil, which never materialized. Um, that's due to the way um, oil exploration works and to the neglect of price as an important factor uh, and so on. So it's kind of, okay, for me, it's funny that there's this trust in technology for the atom, more or less, mm -hmm. but there's not the trust in, oh, technology and oil, and then we'll get yeah, more, yeah. more out. Yeah. But mm -hmm. 
but yeah, it's re- uh, peak oil that there's only so much reserves that we mm-hmm. can get out and like yeah, that. yeah. So let me let me change it uh, a little bit back to the 1970s and the and the oil crisis there, both about personal responsibility, but also environmental movement and how much was personal responsibility part of the national discourse mm-hmm. during this time? Yeah, that was uh, extremely important because in the uh, acute crisis um, when. Uh, there was insecurity about um, how, how much oil would be there um, uh, within uh, over the next year. Um, there was uh, that was basically at the end of um, nineteen at the end of nineteen seventy three. At the beginning of nineteen seventy four, it became clear that actually uh, the quantity or the, uh, the the imports wouldn't be a problem, but the price issue would be would be crucial. But uh, due to the expectation of oil shortages. Um, uh, under the under this uh, this constellation of the embargo, you basically have three different options. You can either um, diversify uh, sources of energy, or you can try to diversify import countries when you are threatened by an embargo, um, or you can try to uh, conserve energy. And um, while the first two options uh, need uh, need time. Um, it's extremely difficult to diversify uh, imports. It's extremely difficult to develop new. Uh, it takes some time to develop new uh, new energy sources. Um, conservation actually works right at the, uh, immediately, more or less, and uh, therefore um, governments uh, relied on energy conservation as uh, energy conservation measures in order to avoid uh, shortages uh, over the winter and. This um, uh, this this was a hugely public discourse, so to speak. They um, there were ads in the newspaper, co-sponsored by oil companies or energy companies, and um, the government encouraging uh, consumers to uh, to conserve energy. And this, of course, became a highly moralized and personal issue then, uh, which then fell back uh, on the government, so to speak. So you also have then. Uh, and of furious letters written to the government by people who saw a politician in a gas guzzling car uh-huh. or um, accuses um, in the US Nixon of uh, using the helicopter to fly somewhere while that is unnecessary uh, gas guzzling and so on. Uh-huh. So, and you did your research on this, mm-hmm. uh, looking at secondary sources. And how did, how did that, when you first read these letters or these articles, how did that struck you within the discourse of the, within the times itself? Uh, it's quite interesting, actually, how basically how willing the population at the beginning is to mm-hmm. actually engage in um, energy conservation if you offer mm-hmm. them uh, <laughs> clear means to conserve energy and um, which are not too or not overly uh, burden and uh, that's not overly questioning their lifestyles so okay. to speak yeah uh-huh. um so the um uh, the the slogan which then becomes uh, uh, popular in germany is um conserving energy without uh, decreasing the personal comfort so oh, to speak okay so okay. this uh-huh. is this is the idea and then uh-huh. this this whole idea of efficiency of insulating your home in order to yes. conserve energy uh-huh. and um, this uh, this becomes something that uh, can be ingrained into into personal habits that people actually th- uh, people actually proud of uh, being uh, 
of not consuming too much energy. And those are the people who then write letters to the government and say that, well, everybody should do that and so on. Okay, they become advocates for, yeah, yeah, for the yeah, conservation yeah. then. Okay. But, uh, I mean, but they are always, but they tend to, um, I mean, uh, that's it's something, it's always, always the case in environmental consciousness and especially in energy consciousness that people are always uh, extremely conscious of certain areas where they consume energy and they tend to neglect uh, other areas. Okay, so, okay. So yeah. maybe they take the bus, but then... They yeah, or they buy a, uh, they buy a, they actually have the means to buy a more fuel efficient car and they are proud of that, but um, still they um, have a large house and, okay, yes. uh, I don't know, burn energy in order to heat the home. So, yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yeah. I understand. So, yeah, they make some adjustments, but not, uh, we could say full adjustments mm -hmm. or not as many as they, yeah. they mm -hmm. could. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we will avoid the discussion mm -hmm. for today. I mean, yeah. like about mm -hmm. today's time mm -hmm. and how things could go. Yeah. But how, how, um, how did that feed into the environmental movement? Because mm -hmm. this became quite, quite big. And I think it also ties into how renewable energies were, were seen later in the 1970s and mm -hmm. 1980s. Yeah. In a way, it was a push for the, um, for the environmental movement. If you look at the, uh, so to speak, so to speak, at the pro-environmental or at the environmentally conscious scene, so to speak. I mean, they used the energy crisis of arguing, um, well, that's what we have told you. The Western affluent lifestyle, high energy consumption lifestyle is not sustainable. Um, this, uh, even though the oil crisis is caused by an artificial curtailment of um, oil deliveries, this actually foreshadows uh, what will come unless we uh, steer a different course now. And this is very, um, this is very prominent in the, in the environmental movement. And they, I think that also that, um, uh, that uh, I don't know, in, may cause a more uh, pro-environmental um, uh, sentiment, but only in some uh, parts of the population those who um, have read the report to the Club of Rome, for example, and thought that the limits to growth and so on is something that is actually uh, an issue or will be an issue. But if you look at the broader political discourse, uh, I would say that the uh, oil crisis rather undermines <laughs> um, uh, environmentalism because it um, demonstrates the, uh, that there's a conflict between um, uh, environmental policies and um, energy security, or there may uh -huh, be a conflict uh -huh. at least. And um, for example, if you look at Germany from the uh, conservative Christian Democrats to the social Democrats and the labor unions, for them it's totally clear there will be no, um, or that they, uh, that they, that um, economic growth is essential for policy making. Um, in uh, and will and will continue yes. to be essential, yes. and this economic growth depends on um, energy security, and therefore um, you have to um, you have to relax environmental policies, and you can't uh, uh, so to speak you can't um, um, worsen your energy security situation by environmental standards. And in the United States, you have the same. You have, mm -hmm. the, uh, you have the loosening of environmental mm -hmm. standards. Um, 
the further oil exploration in the United States. There's rather a, back, a political backlash. Um, so I would say, even though it strengthens the movement itself um, in some areas, I would say, um, yes, on the in the broader public discourse, rather shifts into a different direction. Then. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, then we get into the energy, but but sorry, uh, mm -hmm. I just want to. Mm, so economic growth, so in Germany, it was economic growth um, and giving way to the oil interdependency, basically. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what I'm thinking here is what was the solution to the, the oil crisis in the 1970s that the mm -hmm. government pursued then? What was the policy? Mm -hmm. I mean, all governments pursued more or less similar policy to try to diversify um, energy sources and um, the ways they chose uh, depended on their uh, specific um, specific energy political predicament, so to speak. And um, in the United States, for example, domestic oil exploration was one huge solution. So the um, the solution, or the, or maybe I should state that the um, the general uh, the general thrust after the first oil crisis was not we have to decrease our oil dependency, but we have to de decrease our dependency from Arab oil mm -hmm. um, because there we can, or from OPEC oil, more yes. or less. And this leads to the uh, development of new, um, of um, uh, new non-OPEC oil, for example, the North Sea oil, uh, which becomes yes. then uh, viable in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies. And uh, if you look at Germany, I mean, they try a diversification strategy. They even try to, uh, for a brief period, intensify uh, coal production. Uh, they mm -hmm. see coal as an alternative. Yeah. Um, they um, also um, uh, push gas um, as an alternative to oil. They increase mm -hmm. gas imports uh, from the Soviet Union, which is seen as a reliable uh, supplier of natural gas. Yes. Also of oil um, throughout the Cold War, um, they want to increase uh, atomic energy, and maybe a specific uh, a specificity of the uh, German energy policy is then that um, in the nineteen in the late nineteen seventies, with the um, second reformulation of the um, energy program, energy conservation becomes a huge topic. Um, because Germany has no domestic um, energy sources apart from coal. Coal is uh, not as efficient as the others and so on. And has in these, uh, of course, well, uh, even at that time, known environmental, environmental problems. And therefore, um, energy conservation actually becomes considered to be a uh, uh, a new source of energy, so to speak, uh, or the yeah, German source uh -huh. of energy. Uh -huh. Yeah, because once you uh, group all these different sources of energy together, yes. it doesn't matter anymore if you increase one factor, if you decrease consumption. And that becomes a huge um, issue then um, with uh, in the private sector, but also uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the in the industry. And the goal is then to decouple um, economic growth from energy growth uh, or the growth uh, increasing energy consumption. Okay, okay. So yeah, over this time, and then um, I'm just looking at my questions mm -hmm. and it's not in here, but maybe I can follow up with the Soviet Union as, as, a, as a part of the diversification strategy. And 
was well we could say west germany at this time were they concerned or how how did this work with their relationship with moscow for example mm -hmm. and how did that yeah how, how did mm -hmm. they see and how did they balance this both yep. energy security concern but also we could just say security concern mm -hmm. yep i mean with the social uh, liberal uh, coalition um or the the government under willy brandt um developed this idea that actually increasing economic exchange between the East and the West would lead to a, a decrease of um, international or decrease of, of tension between the blocks. And there was this uh, concept of Wandel durch Handel, change through ex economic exchange, achieving change through economic exchange. So that had been a prog program of... Um, Uh, of the social uh, of the social democratic liberal coalition already and this became strengthened then even though there were still security concerns so uh, one of the first things uh, Willy, uh, Willy Brandt asks his administration after the uh, production cuts by the Arab oil countries become uh, public uh, to make an estimate how much West Germany can decrease can increase uh, oil and gas imports from the Soviet Union without becoming um, uh, energy, without becoming dependent. Um, and um, this uh, concept or this um, east-west trade, east-west energy trade um, continues uh, through the 1980s, even against US pressure already in the mm -hmm. 1980s. And um, The main reason is that the Soviet Union is a very reliable supplier of oil and gas throughout, despite all uh, political conflicts, um, because, um, as you know, uh, oil, and, uh, oil and gas imports uh, don't create dependencies, but interdependencies. Um, the Soviet Union depends on the money um, it, to a similar degree Uh, as uh, Western Germany depends on the energy then. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And this relationship then, um, did it help? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the answer, so, mm -hmm. uh, but let's see if you have the answer. When, when 1989 comes, right, in the mm -hmm. 1990s and unification comes, how much did this um, energy relationship or this relationship around energy facilitate unification And maybe not just unification of Germany itself, but but its relationship with the Soviet Union and dealing with uh, unification. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I can yeah, answer, yeah, if I can answer I don't that know. question. <laughs> um, I mean, um, the energy landscape in East and West Germany are were completely different. Uh, yeah. So I wouldn't say that okay. there's any any larger effect. I mean. It was. You might rather make an argument that the. Um, uh, you may make an argument that the uh, declining oil prices in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, there's this argument. They actually undermined uh, Eastern Europe and so on. Yeah. yeah. Whether it whether it contributed to the. Um, uh, to the integration after 1989, I think that's. Uh, Yeah, no, that's not for me okay. to say. No, 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 it's <laughs> right, okay. No. It was but, off the top yeah, of my head. Okay. Yeah, But yeah, no right, the low yeah. oil price in the 1980s meant the Soviet Union was getting less hard currency mm -hmm. for the oil yep. that they were mm -hmm. exporting. Right. Then. And yeah. even the GDR, I mean, yeah. even the GDR 
they get uh, they get cheap oil from the Soviet Union and they sell it uh, they sell it to the West uh, in order uh, to increase their uh, trade balance and that that's also a model that doesn't that doesn't work. Yeah. Right, right, right. So so then yeah, it's, it's on a similar line as well. Right. So mm -hmm. so yeah. they mm -hmm. were and because they were one of the I don't know you're the historian here mm -hmm. so they were one of the the least or what economically we say maybe depressed countries in the mm -hmm. eastern bloc would that be right to say or how in comparison uh how was east germany in comparison to other countries? no i don't think no no i don't okay. think so i think okay. they were they were other okay. far developed but uh, actually my uh my colleague to <laughs> okay. two offices next to me is more knowledgeable okay. on the eastern uh, eastern economy okay okay east okay economy. i i know from mm -hmm. personal experience i was in mm -hmm. in 1989 i came to berlin Mm -hmm. And uh, then we went to East Germany and we flew from there. It was a school trip. Mm -hmm. And we flew to St. Petersburg, then Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, I was only like 15 at the time. So, mm -hmm. But I remember going through Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah. And then like everything just gray. Everything was completely gray. Mm -hmm. And then when we came back after being in the Soviet Union and we came into... Uh, into Berlin, into West Berlin. It was like amazing. Because yeah, 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 the yeah, flower, yeah. it was spring, flowers <laughs> everywhere. It was just... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This... always depends on where you start. Yes, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was this amazing experience. Um, then, oh, I, I really like the term that you use about the long 1970s. Maybe we should have started there, but I was wondering if you could go back, if we could go back a little bit and explain what is the long 1970s? Um, yeah, I mean, history doesn't really come in decades, but historians have the uh, tendency to think about uh, decades, uh, decades, so to speak. And uh, then, and, and in contemporary history, especially because we uh, always uh, depend on the on the government files, and the government files become public with the uh, become public usually with a thirty year waiting period. <laughs> then at some point, everybody focuses on the nineteen fifties. Then everybody focuses on the nineteen sixties. Then on the nineteen seventies. And as they realize that um, those are the um, that the issues they are investigating aren't confined to the decades, then they always start to develop the long <laughs> the long 1950s, the long 1960s, okay. the long 1970s. But uh, you could make, of course, an argument there that um, 1968 uh, is a crucial year in uh, Western Europe and even around uh, and the United States, of course, but even around the world. At their, um, I know it's, uh, there are cultural shifts that mm -hmm. actually. Um, separate the 60s as rather more 60s spirit which is more um i don't know future oriented and uh even yeah euphoric utopian from a 1970s um culture which is rather focusing on problems crisis economic crisis and so on and this continues i think into the 1980s and uh, yeah okay mm -hmm. okay so that's why and because then you can account for to reagan uh, mm -hmm. being against yeah. uh, this mm -hmm. relationship with the soviet union for oil mm -hmm. and, and yeah. gas mm -hmm. okay and um uh, yeah, move on to the six and seven question, which you can correct me on, or we can rephrase as after the energy crisis subsided, how did the initial uh, response create a greater inter interdependency? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, uh, as a historian, it's extremely difficult to measure um, interdependencies, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak. And, um, but what is uh, 
obvious, I think, is that uh, the oil crisis uh, created a greater sense of uh, global interdependencies that hadn't been there um, earlier. Um, I think um, there was, on the one hand, the realization that um, oil and a continuous fly, uh, supply of uh, uh, cheap oil is vital to the functioning of mm -hmm. uh, modern, industrialized, highly mobile, um, globally integrated uh, economies. And um, that... Um, this uh, and the uh, and in the oil crisis, Western industrialized countries realize that um, they by themselves cannot uh, guarantee the sufficient influx of oil at uh -huh. uh, a low price um, anymore, and that no country is actually able uh, to do it uh, on its own, but they um, they depend on the decisions uh, that are made by other countries. On the first of all, they realize that they actually depend on uh, countries they uh, uh, on the OPEC and the OAPEC countries, which they hadn't taken seriously for a very long time in the 1960s. But now, um, in the concrete constellation of the oil crisis, they. Um, they have to start to accommodate and negotiate. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think, um, therefore, interdependence becomes uh, such, a, such an important notion um, throughout the 1970s in order to describe this um, newly more complex global scene, which um, cannot be understood by solely lo looking at the two global superpowers anymore. Mm -hmm. But... Mm -hmm. um, OPEC and OAPEC uh, form a, yeah, a kind of power which cannot be controlled either by the United States or by the Soviet Union. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. It's a, I don't say a middle way, but um, mm -hmm. another party out there, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. right. And there's this idea of um, uh, that uh, the, the bipolar world will end. We will have a uh, multipolar world, um, yeah. which becomes extremely... Um, uh, um, extremely prominent in the 1970s. In the United States, there is this um, talk, for example, Kissinger uh, mm -hmm. with his aides says, argues that it's, it's a disgrace. Usually we should be able to send in the cavalry and um, <clears throat> occupy the oil fields. And there are even some contingency, uh, there are even some contingency plans to do that. But it's still, it's still, it's not possible for the United States at this moment. Um, they um, they are uh, they have only just ended the the Vietnam War. The country is uh, not extremely willing to engage in another war, but also the repercussions of uh, or the reper the global repercussions mm -hmm. of an American intervention in the Gulf area. Uh, what would the the Soviet Union do, and so on? Would uh, were much too risky. Therefore, even they have to accommodate, and even um, uh, even Kissinger then uses the notion of interdependence when he um, invites uh, Western uh, oil import countries to the Washington Energy Conference. Um, at, in February 1974, and even there, start even he starts with the idea: Well, we have to acknowledge interdependence now. We are all in this together. Of course, it's 
it's a little camouflage. Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. the whole um, idea of the Washington Energy Conference is to pressure the um, uh, European allies uh, in line and to form a common stance against uh, the um, the Arab countries. Yeah, but um, so this notion and this acknowledgement of interdependence is there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did did. This, this Washington Energy Conference in 1974, I haven't heard, heard of this then. So this was kind of a diplomatic tool that the U.S. was trying to use to bring the Europeans onto their side or create mm -hmm. greater tie. In. Yeah. I mean, the idea is um, to, uh, um, to develop a common a collective response uh, uh -huh. against the um, Arab uh, production cuts. And to um, uh, the, I mean, they what they what happens um, right uh, at the um, after the onset of the embargo that actually every country, of course, try to uh, tries to um, secure uh, its own. Uh, its own oil supplies and they try to develop um, uh, they try to negotiate bilateral deals with producing countries and this yes. of course leads to a, a, a problematic competition between the mm -hmm. uh, Western European countries um, but they are pursuing these bilateral deals and the idea is to develop a common energy policy uh, strategy and um, also to develop uh, um, a means to um, uh, to uh, develop uh, to develop a collective response once um, the a, a constellation like the oil crisis should reoccur, mm -hmm. and therefore um, at the Washington Energy Conference they uh, found the International Energy Agency, which okay. is uh, uh -huh. a new international organization. Uh, and at the core of the International Energy Agency stands the idea to um, avoid future embargoes by developing mm -hmm. uh, an oil sharing mechanism among the countries so that um, it's impossible to pressure one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, oil importing countries by, uh, by, product, by, uh, uh, by export cuts um, because then the other countries will step in. And it actually, and that's actually interesting. I mean, the uh, the International Energy Agency has a has a mechanism that once um, the oil supplies in one of the participating countries drops under a certain threshold, um, all the other countries have to step in and have to share their oil supplies. So they're actually um, giving up some sovereign rights there. Um, yes. Yeah. In the end, uh, this mechanism was never used because okay. uh, the next crisis is always different uh, from the first okay. crisis. So yes. something like the something like the oil crisis would not be possible anymore. But um, the nineteen seventy nine crisis was different. Was different in a way. It was yes. largely a crisis on the spot markets and so on. And therefore, the oil share mechanism wasn't uh, necessary there. Yeah, okay. it was yes. was never used. But uh -huh. um, so that's the idea uh, of it. And um, but then. Um, the International Energy Agency, of course, has an important function in order to uh, harmonize energy policies, in order to exchange knowledge of uh, ec between experts from different administrations on uh, energy balances in the various countries and so on. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it hasn't been used, but 
I like mm-hmm. your comment that each crisis is different. Mm-hmm. And so, yep. so they develop one response for, for a crisis, but mm-hmm. then the next one, for yep. example, on the spot market, um, what was that? That was the Iran Iraq War right. mm-hmm. in yep. 1979. Mm-hmm. Yep. So mm-hmm. it changed it then. I, I want to hit on the um, sovereignty mm-hmm. that, that you bring out and also the concept of colonialism. But uh, maybe first on, on the sovereignty issue, and because you do have your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I don't have sovereignty and oil, or sorry, oil and sovereignty. Oil and sovereignty, okay. <laughs> and yeah. um, uh, why why is sovereignty such a um, an important concept to tie into oil mm-hmm. or to tie into energy? Yeah, I think that um, I mean sovereignty. First of all, is a very uh, complicated concept. On the one hand, it's a legal term, and um, this legal notion of sovereignty, of uh, supreme authority over a certain territory, um, which is independent from any other authority. This is not, of course, connected to um, uh, to oil, but uh, sovereignty is also a political uh, concept of actually being able to decide uh, and to decide autonomously um, over a certain political issues over a certain territory. And I think there um, oil is oil has become crucial over the course of the 20th century in order to um, maintain sovereignty. Uh, and there are several connections I think you might want to make. Uh, the first is um, that uh, with the First World War, it becomes obvious that um, no country in the future will be able to wage a successful war which, without having uh, ample access to uh, oil reserves and so on. And this is therefore for military security uh, and for the, which may be crucial for maintaining state sovereignty, um, access to oil um, has been uh, crucial. But uh, these are fairly small amounts you need there (laughs) compared to what happens after the Second World War when actually whole uh, economies become dependent on and the functioning of whole economies become dependent on the uh, continuous uh, influx of uh, cheap abundant oil. And um, this is... uh, as oil is the function, uh, as oil is the basis of um, economic growth and the uh, crucial and economic growth is a crucial um, legitimatory force for Western uh, democracies, especially in the competition with uh, Eastern Europe, which has a different model of um, uh-huh. organizing the economy and, so- and the society. Yeah. Um, every threat to these oil supplies becomes a threat to uh, national sovereignty and to uh, because it may undermine uh, your uh, it might may undermine prosperity with that it may it may undermine uh, the stability of the social fabric fabric um, in your country yeah and um, therefore um, it's not. Uh, it's no surprise that then um, uh, Carter um, declares um, any attempt to uh, change the balance of power in the Middle East an attack on vital U.S. interests and on therefore national <laughs> sovereignty of the United States. And therefore, I think it's extremely closely. It's extremely closely connected. 
And then, of course, on the other hand, there's this, uh, there's an, another connection if we look at the producing countries, which um, in the process of decolonization um, after the Second World War, um, acquire uh, political independence, um, but uh, realize that this political independence means very little as long as they have um, uh, this political sovereignty, so to speak, means very little as long as they have no sovereignty over their natural resources, mm -hmm. because these natural resources um, are still produced by the multinational uh, corporations based on contracts which have been uh, signed much earlier, and they just participate uh, in the revenues. And um, therefore, um, the, uh, the uh, countries of the so-called third world um, and uh, or the global south, as we might say, um, realized this um, at the beginning of the 1960s, so to speak, and especially in international fora like the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, they um, argue that permanent sovereignty over their national resource, natural resources um, is something they want to acquire and they want to get rid of these, um, of these economic dependencies. And um, you might argue that uh, or you might argue it's clear that OPEC is uh, the first um, international organization of countries solely consisting of countries from the global south mm -hmm. that um, is actually able to acquire this oh. sovereignty over their natural resources um, over the course of the 1970s. On the one hand, by increasing the price first, then yes. by... Uh, acquiring the control over production and then by nationalizing uh, the uh, countries from the global north. And this had not been possible um, uh, 20 years earlier. If you look at the uh, Iranian uh, oil crisis and the attempt by Mohammad Mossadegh to um, uh, nationalize the Iranian oil industry um, on his own, so to speak, um, there, uh, the West could uh, basically group together. Nobody was nobody was uh, 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 transporting the oil anymore. Uh, the um, the United States and Great Britain staged a coup against Mossad against so on. This mm -hmm. failed, and the lesson is we can't do that. Uh, no, no country, no producing country can do this on on its own. But um, OPEC. Uh, can actually do it, and therefore OPEC presents itself um, in the early 1970s as the vanguard uh, of the Global South uh, in its fight to um, establish a new international economic order. Mm -hmm. And so um, com coming from this, maybe I won't go into too much detail in colonialism, although it's, it's a really interesting topic for energy, and there's not so much written on mm -hmm. it either. But maybe we go to the institutions so from the 19 so um coming out of the 1970s then how I, i'm feeding you mm -hmm. this line but how important are these institutions coming out of the 1970s mm -hmm. and maybe even the second part is how did they shape the energy system that we know today mm -hmm. yeah i mean um opec of course is extremely <laughs> crucial as an international organization i mean opec manages to um control the price of oil for um, 
for a very for a very long time i mean they don't have the same control uh, as they used to have um in the early 1970s but of course they they still have a huge impact on the on the global oil market on the global oil market and they also and also the i mean with the uh with the international energy agency you might be more skeptical but i would also say that the international energy agency has a, a plays a crucial role for the dissemination of um, energy related knowledge and of uh, the harmonization of um, energy policies um, in uh, in the western in the western industrialized countries mm -hmm. yeah so we have the institutions mm -hmm. uh, how important they are okay so then the final question um, you brought up Kissinger and you brought up the US diplomatic effort at this time and it would be about leadership mm -hmm. because yeah, looking around nowadays, leadership seems to be, well, maybe in short supply, mm -hmm. but maybe in the 1970s, people felt similar. And, and mm -hmm. looking at leadership and those leaders at the time, uh, how important, uh, I mean, of course it's important, but w what was the role of leadership in navigating this diplomatically uh, mm -hmm. for Western countries? Yeah. Yeah, that's also a tricky question, and it's uh, <laughs> leadership in a way is always important. But I think the the crucial point uh, with respect to energy is that um, because um, energy is so uh, energy is all pervasive, so to speak, and energy is important for um, every aspect uh, of the economy and also for our private lives. And um, basically, everybody in the country. Everybody in a country comes into contact with the energy economy on a daily basis by, I don't know, fueling our cars and um, and um, or paying our bills and so on. Um, therefore, I think that um, price uh, increases or um, uh, supply sh shortages are immediately recognized by everybody and therefore mm -hmm. energy is so to speak an excellent field to um, uh, prove uh, leadership and this becomes mm -hmm. especially important in modern media democracies mm -hmm. so to speak mm -hmm. yeah and um, Nixon um, you mentioned Nixon in the United States he's of course um, weakened by the Watergate scandal already his approval ratings uh, have been uh, have uh, un uh, unprecedentedly low, so to speak, but um, he sees energy as a field now to show uh, leadership and to prove that he is still in charge. And therefore, he um, tries to address the public repeatedly in uh, nationally uh, broadcasted uh, TV messages. Um, trying to uh, or explaining them uh, that he is actually capable, that actually he's not responsible for the energy crisis, but he blames the energy crisis um, increasingly on the, uh, on the Arab producing countries, even though the energy crisis in the United States has been there already in the preceding winter and is largely uh, homemade, so to speak. And um, also trying to show that he is actually capable of uh, uh, implementing measures to overcome the energy crisis. And um, even though this is also this is extremely tricky, then it's, uh, this um, easily backfires. For example, when he uh -huh. pr when he addresses the nation on CBS uh, in I think November 1973. 
He's introduced uh, by the moderator with now uh, we'll hear talk uh, by uh, the president who just returned by helicopter from uh, <laughs> his mountain retreat or something. Yes, yeah? yes. And therefore, um, this is uh, for Nixon, it's nearly impossible to prove leadership at this moment okay. in time. And there's also this idea. But I think that um, the all pervasiveness of energy um, makes it um, an issue that is uh, extremely closely connected to people's uh, uh, to people's daily lives, and therefore, um, it's a if you want to show that you are polit politician who is uh, in charge and who is actually leading the country, um, this is an area where you can prove your leadership. Okay, excellent. Mm -hmm. And energy makes a great research area because it has all these elements yeah, like leadership, right. sovereignty, state, mm -hmm. and everything. Okay, great. So, uh, Rudiger, thank you so much for taking the time and meeting with me. No, thanks. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. And I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.